Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. I'll give everybody a moment to kind of get seated and settled, and then we will get moving. I'm still getting used to the Secret Service microphone, and like you say that word, something that starts with P. Sorry, I'm trying to minimize that as best I can. All right, uh, let's start with prayer, and we will get going with week four. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Father in heaven, some do trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in you. I pray, Lord, that you would, by the person of your Holy Spirit, uh, come this morning and illuminate your word, that your word would instruct us uh, and that you would help us to be faithful to it, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, all right, uh, today's week four of a four-week series on the Psalms. We're talking about how the Psalms are for us, and us as a church. Uh, I appreciate being able to be up here. It's the first time I've done this in a while, and um, uh, it's the first time in a church setting and actually the church for a while. So I really do appreciate the oversight of the pastor and the elders. Uh, so I just wanted to say thank you uh, and uh, praise God and give him the glory for this and uh, not me. So here we go. Um, I'm going to lay out a bit of a case um, of how the Psalms are for us and in what sense. And I'm going to basically just we're going to go through all the quick wave tops of the numbers that you're looking at here. So look at points two through six on the outline. If you need them, they're in the back. So it goes a little bit something like this. I'm going to just lay the whole thing out in a nutshell and kind of go into some depth as we go. And we're going to get to the Psalms as a practical demonstration at the end. It goes like this. We, we are a people created for community. And I think we need to spend a little bit of time considering that because we as individualistic American Westerners don't necessarily have that as our first thought, so we're gonna spend some time thinking about that. Then God ordered that the community worship together. Corporate worship then is good for God's community. And then the Psalms are commanded for use in our corporate worship. Therefore, the Psalms are for our use, us, the church, in corporate worship. And then I'm gonna kind of demonstrate from scripture how practically the Psalms were used corporately to that good end. And that's kind of what you can expect going forward. And I hope to have a little bit of time at the end uh, for questions. So how does this actually look? Let's take a look at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, after God has created, what does he say? Everything is good except for one thing. It is not good for man to be alone. And that's the first thing that God does not bless with his, hey, this is good. It's not good for man to be alone. And from there, we see a pattern coming out. Uh, the pattern is all throughout Genesis. We see families develop. So the first thing that we see is Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's children. And God is dealing with that community as it grows. We see different examples of families throughout uh, the, uh, the account in Genesis. There are too many to mention. I'm gonna pick the most famous one, which is that of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob renamed to Israel. They're living as a family unit. They go into 
Um, if we look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, you're going to see the nation of Israel as 70, 70 people. They go into Egypt to escape the famine, and they come out at the end of the Exodus in about uh, like 2 million-ish people. Like the numbers grow that big, 2 million people. And so that is the biblical community that God is building together and he's dealing with them as a community, right? He calls people to represent that community and then that community is taken from place to place and dealt with in a covenant. And so therefore, I take from that that God has created us not to live as rugged individuals living all by yourself in the desert, uh, the desert that is Las Vegas, uh, but, also, but really to participate together in a community, either as a family or as your extended family, which you're going to see in a bit, is the church. Then we start to see, as God is dealing with his community, that he um, starts out very early. So if you look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, it basically tells us, um, did I write that down? I did. I've got my notes here and like the scripture is all written out and so I gotta make sure I get in the right place. Uh, in Exodus chapter three, verse 18, it says this, and they will listen to your voice and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, this is God speaking to Moses, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's very early is we're going out into the desert, not just to hang out, but to worship together as a community. Move on then to Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. I will summarize this. That's a big chunk of scripture, but basically this is the, um, where the people are receiving the covenant. The whole nation is gathered under the mountain as Moses is administering the covenant the mediating the covenant between God and the nation of Israel and throwing the blood on them, and it's the whole group that are there to receive the covenant and to worship together. So then specific direction is given to this group on how they are to worship. So if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 20, we see this. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on this day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. If we look then and turn a couple of pages to Deuteronomy chapter 12, we see in comparison to the abominable practices of the indigenous peoples of Canaan and then between Egypt and where they are going, we see this, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. But for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. 
And so from this, in our doctrinal tradition, we get what's called the regulative principle. What that means is God is not worshipped in any way we please. God is only worshipped in the way that he has prescribed, the way that he has told us to worship him. And in a lot of the context, he goes, well, do you see what those people are doing? Don't do that. Some of it's pretty clear. Don't sacrifice your sons and daughters to Molech. Don't build the altar to Baal. Don't raise the Asherah pole. Don't do that kind of thing. I have not commanded that. And so we get that, and we also get, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. See, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so God dictates to us how we are to worship him, not the other way around. This continues all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You can see that Jesus doesn't call a disciple. He calls a group of disciples. And all his teaching is done to either that core group or the smallest he gets is Peter, James, and John. And then we kind of see it expanding from there. You've got the core group, and then you've got the 12, and then you've got the larger group of disciples that are traveling with him, and then anybody who else is teaching, like the crowds as he's sitting down uh, to teach at the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's teaching groups, and he is calling groups. You can kind of see that. If you look over at Hebrews, if I find where I wrote it, I'm a little disorganized this morning. I apologize for that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews tells us this, and let us consider how to stir one another up, to, uh, how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is kind of the first thing that at least you're seeing entering into my case that there's a purpose for which we're gathering together, right? Not just don't do this, do that instead, but encouraging one another, stirring one one another up towards love and good works. That's the purpose for which we're getting together in corporate worship. And then if you read the entire book of First Corinthians, which I will not be doing this morning, you see that Paul, through that whole book, one of the major things that he's trying to do there is say, the manner in which you are worshiping is out of order. Stop that. Do it this way instead. And at the very first priority, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, the first priority is the gospel. And he'll outline a sketch of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 after a whole host of other corrections leading up in the rest of that book, or that letter, I should say. And so you kind of see that we're not, we're not only commanded to, to be together. God didn't just ordain us to be together. He ordained that we worship together for a particular purpose. And so it is good that we're together in corporate worship. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 is the, uh, the classic two are better than one passage. And so why are we doing that? Because one can lift the other up. Remember what Hebrew, we just read in Hebrews is that we are stirring one another up towards love and good works by meeting together. So that's a very good thing. It's mutual encouragement. And now we finally get to the point where we're going to talk about singing a little bit. Why is it that singing together in corporate worship is good? Because, hey, did they sing in the Old Testament? Oh, yes, they did. If you look at the accounts of in First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all the way back even in Judges, you see that they are singing with one another to celebrate God's um, deliverance for what they've done. You're going to see more of that in a second. They're thanking God for what he is doing. 
uh, and also they're singing to encourage one another. Now, in our modern context, there's a lot of ink spilled in the worship wars. Uh, if you know, if you lived through the '90s, and many of us did, there were uh, through the '80s and '90s. The big question was, well, what ought we to do? Should we sing out of the hymnal, or should we sing some other things, the sing a new song unto the Lord kind of a thing? Well, a lot of the ink spilled on that is basically telling us that it is good to sing together, and I'll reserve judgment on what to sing in just a second. Um, but it is good to sing together so that we can all enter into that together and create literal and figurative harmony. See what I did there? Music, harmony. My wife's smiling at me in the back. She's a musician. It, it has a unifying effect. That's kind of the point. Um, that when we are getting together, if we're singing a song, we can all sing together. There's some mutual encouragement. And I've got a practical demonstration of that when we start looking at Psalm 46 and 136. Um, now kind of moving on. So it is good for us to be in, in corporate worship. It is good for us to sing in corporate worship. Now here we are to the Psalms. Now why the Psalms? Okay, well it could be just as simple as Paul directs us to do that in Colossians 3.16. Uh, there's also a parallel passage in Ephesians where you, this is the singing and encouraging one another in Psalms, uh, hymns, and spiritual songs. You can treat that as a command from the apostle. This is how we are to incorporate this into our worship. Um, so it could just be that easy. Bible says do it, and therefore we're going to do it. That's all. Yes, absolutely, 100% there. But I'm going to demonstrate that also through Scripture that there is the reason behind it, and that it is a good one. Uh, I'm going to double down on the direction here for two more points and then on into some of the practical. The Westminster Confession uh, affirms this in chapter 21, paragraph 5. Uh, if you want to look that one up, that will basically say, uh, make reference to public worship and psalms as a part of directed public worship. And if you look at the Presbyterian Church in America's Book of Church Order, it further affirms it uh, because the, the Westminster Confession is a founding constitutional document for us, and the Book of Church Order is a clarification of how things are to be done and you see in chapter 51, paragraphs 3 and paragraph 5, that psalms are to be incorporated in public worship. Okay. Therefore, that's it. Lesson over. Right? No, not quite. Why is this good? Um, this is practically demonstrated for us uh, in the New Testament as well as the Old, because like, we spent how much time looking at the titles in the psalms for the choir master, to the choir master, that we're to do this thing. We also see it in the New Testament, which is kind of cool, in Matthew 26, 30, where they are finishing the upper, or Jesus is finishing this upper room discourse, and they're about to leave, and they, uh, they're having the Last Supper. It says, and they sang a hymn, and then they left, is basically what it mean, that means. Well, what hymn was that? If you look at Passover tradition, they are singing uh, what was known as the Egyptian Hillel. It's a group of psalms, ending with Psalm 118, and that would be the last one sung in a Passover celebration. And it starts out something like this, and you're going to hear these words again. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So Jesus and his disciples, who would become the apostles, are singing that right as Jesus is leaving the institution of the Lord's Supper and going right to the cross. And so it's demonstrated that that is part of their public worship. Um, and now we're going to talk about why it's good. So therefore, they are for use in our public worship, because as the church, we are God's elect, his community of believers, and so what has been given to the elect in the past is also ours. So what good are they? 
can we do the, can we use these things practically? Like when we're talking a lot about mutual encouragement and we're talking a lot about how they're good for us. Well, can you give me a picture? Well, sure. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Psalm 46 and 136 of just how good this can be. Let's consider first, before we read the psalm, the context of Psalm 46. So if you turn with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18, we see that, uh, to set this up, you see that Israel and Judah have been split for a very long time. The northern kingdom of Israel has been, at this point in 2 Kings 18, been dispossessed. What that means is the Assyrians have come in, and they have attacked the northern kingdom, and they committed genocide. No kidding. We see it in our Bibles, and okay, they conquered them, and they moved them over places, but what is going on here is literal genocide. Here's how that worked. They moved in, and then they moved them out, and they put them all over the place, not just in one city, but they put them all across their own empire, and they moved people who didn't live in that place in that place, and those that were remaining, who were the Jewish people, were intermarried with those foreigners, and therefore they did that on purpose to wipe out the ethnicity, or at least to mix it up. Same thing with the people up that are moved out uh, and displaced throughout their empire. They weren't, so if they were not physically slaughtered, they absolutely were intermarried with other people groups in order to wipe the people group off the face of the earth. So that has just happened to the Northern Kingdom. Now what I'm gonna ask you to do is to kind of put yourself in that mentality. Kind of enter into, I am a citizen of Jerusalem, I'm hanging out with my neighbors, and this news has reached us that the Northern Kingdom has just been dispossessed. And that same army is marching south towards you. How do you feel about that one? Probably pretty scared, right? This is like, you know, maybe the closest we can come to it in our modern parlance is like 9-11. Something bad happened on the East Coast, and we don't know if it's going to march across the entire United States. Like, foreboding, you're talking to your neighbors going, what's going to happen? Kind of remember that little attitude. It's like that times about 50 or more. Um, so you can see that that has happened, uh, and that happens in 2 Kings 17. That same army's marching south. Um, the king of Israel, or sorry, the king of Judah right now is a man named Hezekiah. He has been a vassal of the Assyrians, and he has now rebelled against the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are upset about this, and they're going to come and dispossess him as well. And Siri just triggered on my iPad, which is awesome. So in any case, they're going to come and dispossess him as well. And so when they come to do that, they line up and surround the city, and they're going to start siege warfare. And just to describe what that looks like, they're going to try to choke you to death and try to use all the resources in that city and starve you to death and either make you come out and surrender, or when they finally do breach the wall, you are so starving and so beat down and so demoralized that it's going to be easy for them to roll you over, kill you all, and do the exact same thing for the people that they had done to the northern kingdom. All right? Uh, and so what does Hezekiah do? He is receiving this kind of a message from the people on the wall, uh, and he has his messengers and his ambassadors listening to the commander of uh, King Sennacherib's armies. Now, Sennacherib was the Assyrian king. And if you're the citizen of Jerusalem, remember, you're kind of sitting there, and you're like, what's going on here? I hear this rabble at the wall. Somebody's shouting at us. Let me go over there and find out. 
So maybe you and a couple of your friends are going to look over the wall and see these hordes just surrounding the whole city and a guy shouting up at you going uh, and kind of trying to communicate a message to Hezekiah's officials. And it says something like this. Maybe you get there a little bit late, but you start hearing this. In your own language, by the way, how then can you, people, repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it... Is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And then you hear your own officials kind of murmuring amongst each other, and then it picks up in, chapter, in verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, that's the official talking from Assyria, they say this, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Basically, stop talking. Shut up. Don't scare our own people. Well, do you think they actually listen? No. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, staying in Hebrew, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? And they keep going. And now here you are, Hearing that, what's your conversation like with your neighbors? What is your conversation like with your sons who are of military age? What is your conversation like when you're going to public worship? Think about that for a second. And so what does Hezekiah do? He prays for deliverance in the temple. Isaiah ends up giving him an oracle of um, blessing that's going to say, nope, the battle is going to uh, belong to the Lord and not to, uh, to you. He prays in uh, chapter 19. And then we see this. Eventually they withdraw because they hear a rumor. And then they start marching back. And then you, hear, you see this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the, the king of Assyria. This is Isaiah speaking. He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way, he came by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and uh, went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrimelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of, er uh, of Ararat. And Asheridon, his son, reigned in his place. So there you are. You've been delivered by God himself. You have not had to sortie out of your fortress. You have not had to conduct siege warfare. And God himself has saved your life and the life of your whole community. And so, what is the response to this? Psalm 46. So turn with me to Psalm 46, I'm gonna read it. And as I read this, think about it this way. As you have just been delivered from this upcoming apocalypse, this holocaust that's about to be perpetrated against you, your whole community joins together to sing this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That kind of changes the meaning of it a little bit, right? So if you're just reading this on your morning uh, readings and you see Psalm 46, oh, that's kind of cool. But to put it in context, to see just how a community would have used this practically sort of changes your perspective on it, I think. Let's take a look at some of the imagery, uh, and then we can kind of consider a little bit about why this was good. Um, some of the imagery you're seeing in here is, uh, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. If you think about that for a second, you see water imagery throughout the whole Old Testament, and this is the image they're trying to cast. The mountains, so things that you can, like that's not gonna move, right? Like that's a big rock, I can use that for shelter and instead it's being thrown into the sea. The sea, as they're conceiving of it, if you look at some of the, like I said, the water imagery of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. The earth was formless and void, and the surface, and the, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. The earth is disorganized, it's chaotic, and the water owns it. The next time we see it in, in force is Genesis seven, verse 19, that's the flood. And it talks about the waters prevailing against the earth, and it's covering the whole earth up to 18 or more cubits. That, that cubit's about 18 inches. You also take a look at the book of Jonah. Jonah is cast into the sea from a place of safety on the boat, relative safety, into a place of chaos. He's going to go into the water, and if you've ever been in the ocean before and kind of felt it moving you, and if you go out further, like and get caught by the riptide and get sent down the beach, um, or, or pulled right out back out to sea, that's the kind of image that they're trying to portray with the waters. It's the place of chaos. It's the place where God, or, and the pagans anyway, thought that God had no dominion. Which is why, if you look in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, when Jesus calms the storm, that's one of the main reasons why his uh, disciples were so afraid of him, because they were afraid of the water because their concept of the water was this thing is just uncontrollable and chaotic, and it's the pagan idea is that not even God can control this. And Jesus himself, God incarnate, says, peace, be still, and you've got to see a glass. That's why they're so freaked out about it. And so now, if you kind of see that this is, this is the image they have, this is how troubled they are, that the mountains, the rocks, the things that they trust upon, oh, and by the way, Jerusalem, the city on a hill, right? that's cast into the sea, or they're worried that that's actually gonna happen. To kind of you know, double down on some of the imagery. Now contrast that with verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. If you know a little bit about siege warfare, like I talked about before, they're kind of gonna choke your resources, one of which is water. And if your city is fed with water, like Hezekiah provided for Jerusalem, then you can last a lot longer. 
But this isn't just that. It's a contrast to the roaring, rushing ocean, and it's a peaceful image, a sustaining image. Uh, a couple of things for the river. In, if you look in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22, you see a roughly the same image of a trickle of water coming out from the door of the temple that a little bit further on gets deeper and wider and deeper and wider as you get further on down the way. And, that, and it's also glassy smooth, that this is the blessing of God that gets bigger and bigger as it goes forward and more and more and more. And that's the contrast that we're looking at here, that though the waters roar and foam, that the mountains tremble at its swelling, but there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And we don't have enough time to even talk about the rest of it, but it kind of is a little self-explanatory, right? The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, God burns the chariots with fire, uh, and, so, um, and so therefore be still and know that I am God. And I wonder, I think a lot of us have a, a little concept of be still and know that I am God, and oh, be still, know that I am God, everything's going to be okay. But that's, we get the image wrong, actually. Because right here, both Spurgeon and Calvin in their commentaries aren't saying that that's reassurance for us. It is in an indirect way, but the direct way that it's being used there is enemies of God, be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So shall we take comfort in that? Yeah, you bet. But instead of, it's, it's more of a warlike image. Instead of, hey, everybody be calm, everything's fine. No. It's enemies, enough. Acknowledge the Lord. And so think about, uh, think about all those things. Now, as a community, if we're singing that together, after we've been rescued from an, from an impending apocalypse, can you just imagine just how big and how thankful and how grateful that we're all going to be together and our we're going to just swell up. So we can say that on our own, but as we're all singing that together, when we all thought together we were going to die, you can kind of see that that image for us, for a community, um, makes that a lot more powerful to, because we experienced that together, and now we are experiencing salvation together. I'm going to move on to Psalm 136. You kind of turn with me to that one. Minor story time with that one as well. This one, the best scholarship will uh, admit this is likely written and sung in Solomon's temple and then used for particular purposes. I'm going to draw one of those out. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You've heard that before, right? I'm going to keep going. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh, 
and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for, our steadfast, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is actually very well suited to being uh, kind of liturgical, because you can memorize the second line really easy, and so somebody could read the first line, and then the congregation responds with the second line, for his steadfast love endures forever, to get the congregation working together in a challenge and response or a call and answer kind of liturgy. liturgy. And that's kind of how most scholarship is going to, or many scholars are going to approach this. But this was also sung by Jehoshaphat's army as it approaches the army of the Ammonites and the Moabites in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. To set that one up, Jehoshaphat was an ally of Ahab. Ahab was killed nearly senselessly at random by some archer that just pierced his armor and uh, he just retired in his chariot and died. Jehoshaphat was there at the battle with him. The whole of Israel is scattered, and Jehoshaphat runs back to, to Jerusalem and hides. And now he is threatened because uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20 are approaching. Uh, and they, it's a similar setup to what we've seen already with, uh, uh, with Hezekiah and Sennacherib, only this is much earlier in history. So what happens here? Same kind of a thing, they're really worried and they pray for deliverance and a prophet shows up and he prophesies something like this. If we look in chapter 20, you would think I would have marked my place but I didn't, I apologize. The prophet says this in verse 15, And he said, Listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. So there goes the army. They're kitted up, armed, and march out. And based on this prophecy, Jehoshaphat doesn't have the army go out in front, but he has the singers go out in front. And they're marching towards where they know the enemy is going to be. And what do they say? If you turn the page in my, uh, my Bible, if you see now in verse 21, it says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. They are marching to that same liturgical call and response with the singers out front, and if you've ever been to battle, some of us have, some of us haven't, but just, just by way of real quick explanation, um, I've seen battles at 20,000, between somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 feet looking down, watching soldiers approach each other, getting ready to kill one another. And as the armies are about to meet, trust me, 
they know that something bad's about to happen and some people are going to get hurt and a lot of people may die. And so you do kind of things to kind of rouse your courage. There are people who are afraid. Some are more, pe some are more afraid than others. And as you're about to attack, come on, let's do this. And sometimes it gets profane, but we won't go there. But in any case, this army, how do they encourage one another? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. If you're one of those soldiers, and this is being said to you, you are being mutually encouraged by one another. Those that have courage are shouting it. Those that don't have courage are probably, but it builds because they are together as a group. So just kind of put yourself in that mentality and think about that as you're marching in battle and singing that to be encouraged. And what do they find? That army that they meet has attacked one another and killed each other. That God's prophecy came to pass. God was faithful. He was the one that provided the victory, and they went in there, encouraged one another, and reminded each other. Remember what was said in there? Remember what God did in Egypt? Remember what he did to Og, king of the Amorites? Or, si or sorry, Sion, king of the Amorites, or Og, king of Bashan. Remember that. He will do that here too, some way. We don't know, but, and then they find them all dead. That's pretty awesome. And so Psalm 46 is a celebration of something that has happened. We're celebrating together for something that we have gone through that was difficult. Psalm 136 is we are approaching a difficult situation, and we need to encourage one another and take courage before we face it. So therefore, now I'm going to apply this to the whole church, right? The same thing applies to us. And so how are we going to use the Psalms? Well, we're going to use it just like they did for mutual encouragement. We're approaching, so the New Testament is replete with this is a battle that we are in. We are fighting cosmic forces against this present darkness. So how are we going to rouse our courage in together as a community? We're going to sing God's word. The Psalms are a good place to start, to mutually encourage one another. Some of us might be courageous. Some of us not so much. And so that's the way for us to enter in with one another. Uh, and if you don't need to hear those words yourself, maybe your neighbor needs to hear those words as we are all singing those together. Mutual harmony in corporate worship, talked about that a little bit, about how we are actually harmonious in our song as well as uh, harmonious when we are performing together as a community. To enter into community with one another, kind of describe that uh, a little bit, and to remind one another with God's word of God's continual faithfulness, mercy, and grace to us. Why is this important? It's because this is the word of God. The Psalms are the word of God given to us to aid and guide our worship. Now, in our tradition, we're not going to use the Psalms exclusively, but they're a fantastic place to start. They're a fantastic place where it's ready songs, and some have even been set to music and, and actually versified, made to rhyme a little bit, in order that we know the Bible and we use it to do those very things. Because... We may need to celebrate with one another when something has happened and we came through it. Or we may be approaching something that's going to be really difficult and how do we help one another take courage to face it? Or we are maybe just grateful for what God has done for us or we need to be reminded together of what God has done for us as a community because we forget all the time. And so with that, that is my case for why the Psalms are for us as a church and why we can use them to our mutual benefit because uh, God has given them to us in his word for our good. Uh, I've left myself a few minutes for questions. Uh, so are there any?
every once in a while you'll see like a senior officer in my world get up there and like, give a speech and then goes, okay, anybody have any questions? And nobody has any. And then, you know, he's gonna flip a quarter to go, well, you know, am I gonna stand here or am I gonna say, well, I'm not leaving until somebody asks one. No? All right. Uh, let's pray together and uh, we will worship together. Father, we give thanks to you for you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, you have given us your word. It encourages us and it is for us as a group. I pray, Father, that we would use your word for the purpose you intended, that we would worship you for the way that you have directed and that we would honor you by learning from you and participating with one another in our church community. Thank you for this time to study your word. Uh, I pray for the preaching of your word this morning, uh, that would, uh, your Holy Spirit would illuminate it, uh, and then you would bless us by it. Thank you for this community. Thank you for these people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.